This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Oh, and this is going to be a spirited conversation, too, because as we've introduced you to guests representing so many different arenas of behavior, of uh, religiosity, of, uh, of spirituality, this is the first time that we've ever gotten into the world of ordinariness. You'll find that the author of the book, The Tao of Ordinariness, is a fascinating conversationalist. He's also Dr. Robert Wicks, Professor Emeritus at Loyola University of Maryland, published more than 50 books for both professionals and the general public, and has lectured internationally at places like the Mayo Clinic, Yale School of Nursing, Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Divinity School, and on and on and on. And we can't give you all of his credits because we only have an hour. So we welcome you, Robert Wicks, the author of The Tao of Ordinariness, subtitled Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. And this is going to be interesting because I've read the book. Doctor, if you will, let's start just simply with a definition of terms. Define, if you will, according to the book of Wicks, ordinary, and then narcissistic. Well, the ordinariness is an attitude or stance. That's what I present that really allows the person to explore and be intrigued by the current realities and possibilities within themselves. Um, what I sense when I work with people is the paradox, if they're willing to accept their limits, the possibility uh, for growth and development is almost limitless because they're not wasting energy on trying to be someone else than who they are. And you can often see it in little children. Uh, I remember picking up, going through some old photographs and seeing my two granddaughters and one, the big smile on her face as she opens up a doctor's kit at uh, Christmas and the other one wearing a red turtleneck with a white gown thrown over it and she has her <laughs> hand up to the sky and she's smiling and that whole sense of really just being excited about who you are and intrigued about who you're becoming uh, is wonderful. And it, and it has great history, too. The Bantu tribesmen sought to guide their children toward greater ordinariness, and they would sneak into their rooms when they were sleeping and whisper into their ears, become what you are. So it's, it's, it's quite exciting to ferret ordinariness. That's the mistake my wife and I must have made because we used to whisper into the children's ears, neurosurgeon, hedge fund manager. <laughs> and it just simply made no impression whatsoever. Do you find in your studies and your continued work, not only as an academic, but also as, as a parent and a grandparent, that children have a better grasp of the ordinary than adults? Oh, yeah. I, I must admit, I find that 
that, you know, they're just so excited about everything. Everything seems so natural to them, you know, that, that it's, it, it just amazes me. Uh, when you see a child, you know, behave, you know, in a way that's totally free, totally open to the possibilities. But then as an adult, simply in quotes, being your, your own self can be surprisingly difficult. And I think that's why people pretend to be somebody else. But when you experience the loss of virtue of ordinariness lived out by someone, it's amazing. I, I remember being with a hermit once and I left him and I thought to myself, I don't think I aged when I was with him because there was no friction. Aging takes friction. I could have said to him, boy, you're a dork. <laughs> and he would have said, yes, I do dorky things. How did you know? You know, that kind of thing. So it's, it is, it is, you, I see it more in children than I, than I see it in adults. But also children will grow into adulthood and then they will grow into the recognition of the general definitions that we hear of ordinariness. If you're ordinary, you're bland, you're plain, you're predictable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and those aren't those aren't positive qualities that so many people associate with the word. Oh no, yeah, and that's why ordinariness today is so countercultural because it, you know narcissism is is the name of the game today, uh, and it's it's not you know today being ordinary is is so different because the world is so clearly mesmerized by spin and exhibitionism and, and contemporary uh, society sets aside ordinariness. I, I think many years ago, you know, we would see it differently. When author Flannery O'Connor was complimented by a friend on the publication of one of her books, uh, she wrote back offering the warning that fame was merely a comic distinction shared with Roy Rogers' horse and Miss Watermelon in 1955. <laughs> but, but today, today, you wouldn't see that, no. You see, you immediately got my attention when... <laughs> <laughs> you offered humor from an Irish person named Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> Define narcissistic, if you will. Narcissism uh, is, and we have to be very careful here, because narcissism, there's a thing called healthy narcissism. And that's where, in fact, you are interested in yourself in a way that's appropriate. And by appropriate, I mean, you want to, to you're, you know, you're not, you're not setting yourself aside. You're searching for your signature strengths, both obvious and, and minor. Uh, so, so that's understandable. Uh, the problem with narcissism in its extreme is that, that it can lead to, to not so good things. For example, the most extreme is the narcissistic personality disorder. And it would be the kind of things would be the need for extreme unwavering admiration, constant exaggeration or fabrication of achievements, personal gifts, talents, and influence, monopolizing attention and conversations, a tendency to be sarcastic and belittling to others, an exaggeration of self-importance, an absence of humility, a willingness to take advantage of others, 
you know, an expectation of complete loyalty and compliance without feeling the need to return the favor and an inability to be aware of and respect for the feelings or needs of others. And, uh, and they're also quite resistant. They're dismissive of any suggestion of wrongdoing on their part, and they get explosive to any feedback, no matter how factual, which interferes with their own self-image. And they're difficult to deal with because they can't regulate their speech or control their anger. It, it sounds vaguely familiar. Oh. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and I'm not talking about just the world of politics, because yeah. those qualities seem to be applicable, certainly not always, certainly not for all, but to those people who are prominent uh, publicly uh, with an audience, either through performance, uh, that is theatrical performance, sports performance, often, mm-hmm. often in politics, because after all, the ambitious politician is the person who goes before the public and says, I can solve your problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing is, though, is what is the, what is the purpose behind it? If the purpose behind I can solve your problems is because I recognize my talents and I'm going to try to put them at the service of the country, the state or whatever, uh, versus, you know, I'm going to put them at the service of my own ego. There's a big difference uh, in terms of motivation and that. And also in, in, in entertainment, I used to do some entertainment reviews and stuff. And, and it's understandable to have a level of narcissism. And notice my words, a level of it. And the same thing in sports. But in the old days, if someone caught a pass in football, they would be excited about it for the team. Now there's a whole dance because look at me. And that's a major difference. And I think that let's just take politics for a second. People, if I said, you know, your senator or your representative or whoever, your mayor is, is somebody who's, you know, has depression or anxiety disorder, they would become concerned. And I guess that's natural. But if one of those persons was in treatment, that kind of a person might be an even better leader because they would understand the foibles and the suffering of the people they serve. Not so with a narcissistic personality disorder. The name of the book is The Tao of Ordinariness, written by Robert J. Wicks, subtitled Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. And many of us wonder if they can coexist, humility and simplicity, in a narcissistic age. Like the one I think probably the majority of people agree we're in the middle of. But why Tao? Why the Tao of ordinariness? Because Tao to me means way in the, in the broadest, deepest sense of the term. And humility is something, let, let's just take that. It's even if you want it, it's not something that you can grasp. Let me give you an illustration. My daughter is a social worker, and she said to my granddaughters when they were six and eight, she said, uh, what, what gifts has God given you that you're going to put at the service of the world as you grow up? And they love these exercises, so they launched into their list of gifts. 
And when they were done, my son-in-law, who hadn't said anything up to that point, said, well, what about humility? And, uh, you know, the youngest one was really interested in it, you know, and she said, well, what exactly is it? And he's not so uh, young that he said, let's Google it. He said, get the dictionary. And she got the dictionary and he read the definition of humility. And he said, now, who do you think of, you know, when I when I present that? And both my granddaughters and my daughter chime up, mom, mom, referring to my wife. And he says, well, what about pop-up? And they shake their head and go, uh, no, no, not pop-up. <laughs> I read that. I read that in the book. And I promise you, I sat by myself laughing out loud because I, I too, was pop-pop uh, yeah, when it yeah. came to that. But, all right, I, I think in, in terms of the survival of all of us in this day and age of, at the very least, competition, mm-hmm. I think perhaps if it was rewritten, the line might be the meek shall inherit the earth unless they get the hell beat out of them by a bully. Sure. And, sure. and how, does one, how does one proceed in society, whatever the culture, and not be devoured while being ordinary, meek, mm-hmm. humble? Well, let's take, let's take humility as one of the core traits of ordinariness. When you take knowledge and you add humility, you get wisdom. And when you take that very wisdom and add it to compassion, you get love. And love is at the heart of life, and if you're religious, you believe God is love. With that kind of wisdom, compassion, and love, it's not that you let people step on you. It, that's not it. That's, not, that's a false idea of, of, of humility, just like arrogance is a false uh, design of strength. Uh, It's pseudo-strength, and people can see through it. So I think people who are humble, they know what their gifts are, they know what their growing edges are, and they know when they trip over their gifts. That gives them a lot of wisdom, And that wisdom, in a sense, helps them deal with the most difficult situations, including bullying. Doesn't the assertive, aggressive person have an edge on the humble, ordinary person, particularly in the world of business? No, because I think that, and you used two words almost simultaneously, uh, Lee, you know, almost like they're equal. They're not. Assertive is a humble person uh, because they know what they know and they know their strength and they know that they're part also of of a broader scene. Um, there's that Cameroonian proverb that goes, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm-hmm. So the assertive person would also build up a community of people to go with them. So I think they, in fact, would succeed. I think, for example, the older President Bush, uh, before the Iraq war, developed a great sense of community around him in other countries. 
you know, so that that when he moved forward, he moved forward assertively uh, with others. And when we move aggressively as a country, we often do it on our own, and it doesn't turn out too well. Right on the same page, immediately after the mom, mom, pop, pop story, mm-hmm. uh, there's a uh, a passage, a paragraph by David Brooks, uh, and it had to do with character formation. And if you don't mind, I, I would really like to, just a few lines sure. yeah. that, that he wrote in your book that I found... Um, not only intriguing, uh, but also kind of the development of a portrait of, uh, of David Brooks. He says, I was born with a natural disposition toward shallowness. I now work as a pundit and columnist. I'm paid to be a narcissistic blowhard, to volley my opinions, to appear more confident about them than I really am, to appear smarter than I really am, to appear better and more authoritative than I really am. I have to work harder than most people to avoid a life of smug superficiality. Uh, I thought that that was profoundly interesting because it was so applicable to most of us. Yes, but, but he recognizes it. It's when people don't recognize it and assume that if you say that about them, uh, that, that you're attacking them. When in fact, what he's doing is he's saying it to himself, not simply to criticize himself, but to set the stage for being a deeper person. And, and that's wonderful. Uh, you know, people have a hard time with criticism, you know, I, and I teased him about it. I say, look, you know, so many people think ill of you already. What's a few more at this point? And, uh, <laughs> they're able to at least bust the bubble, you know, and, and take a step back. And I think that ordinary people are able to see their gifts so that, that, and have self-esteem to the extent that a criticism is not going to unhinge them. Instead, it's going to help hone them in terms of what they do. Uh, a failure is part and parcel of things. And uh, most people who are very, very involved, you know, they're going to fail a lot. Statistically, the more you're involved, the more you fail. But it's how you deal with that failure. Do you see it as a portal to new learning about yourself, or do you see it as completely destroying yourself? In your book, The Tao of Ordinariness, you quote rabbis and ministers, monks, um, Buddhists, uh, a broad Mm cross-section of the expressions of faith and belief. And do you think the existence of God alone, omniscient, uh, omnipotent God, do you think that that alone creates a reason to be humble? Or is it just a matter of fear, God-fearing people? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting question because 
an, an omnipotent God can raise many emotions in people. They can, it can raise uh, the emotion of trustworthiness where they feel no matter what happens, somebody's in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. It can raise fear. Or in the case today, you know, when I watch television and see some preachers or I read about certain people who make, you know, religious proclamations, they can tie themselves um, to an omnipotent God and present themselves as omnipotent. And, and that, of course, is dangerous and certainly not ordinary. I think I grew up being concerned about people who proudly suggested that there's a quality of value in fearing God. And I always kind of felt far more comfortable with him being on my side and guiding me along through uh, the uh, the difficulties in life. I was never afraid of God. Yeah, yeah. I remember a cardinal from uh, the United Kingdom once. He was talking, and he said to a friend, he said, you know, when I was a child, I had this this big picture of God, and he looked very fearful, and it was right over the cookie jar. And, uh, and he said, I, I, I always felt guilty when I took a cookie. And then somebody said to me later, I have that same picture, but I always saw it as a loving God. And he said, boy, I wish I would have known that as a kid. I would have taken two cookies. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, it's stand-up comic Robert Wicks presenting his work on The God Show. That's a funny, funny and warm and enriching story. What if God actually, rather than looking uh, like that huge character with the lightning bolts, what if it turns out that he looked like Don Knotts? You, yeah. You just wonder, yeah. would it be a better world? Well, but you know what? The, the thing, interesting thing is, at least with Christianity, is that when you think of Christmas and God in a, in a, in a, in a stable, and being a little baby, yes. that's a radical change for the imagery of God. So anytime I run into difficulties, I approach God as not God the Father, but either as God the child at Christmas or as a grandfatherly figure. So it's how we image God is very, very important. The Tao of Ordinariness um a fascinating title, but not as fascinating as the content uh, of the book. When did this come out, Robert? Uh, it just came out it, it, not not long ago. I, I gathered that because there's so many topical references in the book itself. Uh, what impact do you think social media has had on ordinariness and our difficulty in finding levels of humility and simplicity. Hmm. I think two opposite ones, because it has, you know, on the one hand, uh, made ordinariness something bad because, you know, they, here's how many hits you had, you know, how many views you had, how many likes you had, uh, so that it, it's gone in the other direction and followed, um, you know, current societies, uh, you know, just absolute, you know, compulsion 
to to be self-praised and and admired by others. On the other hand, when you look at you know social media, they almost turn the page and get awed by 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 people who are authentic and compassionate and genuine and caring about others. And you'll see stories like that. Like a, I remember seeing a story of a, a child was had terminally ill and he loved Christmas. So they decided this this town decided to make Christmas for him and they put the re- decorations up and had mm. a Christmas parade and when you see that kind of behavior that sets ourselves aside in a good way, uh, I, I just think it, it makes the social media. Now, it is true that you sell more papers in the old language with bad news rather than good news. But my belief is that the media still is authentic in their desire to present stories where people are really authentic and are doing it in ways that help others. With all of the research that you've had to do over the years and over so many books, uh, are you optimistic about the direction that the world is going, or are we cyclical? Is this the kind of thing that has been going on now every several generations. By the way, you said about all the books I have out. Recently, a friend said to me, how many books have you published? And I told him, and he said, Bob, you really need to get out more often. You know, <laughs> About 50, right? Yeah, somewhere over that, yeah. Uh, well, let me just talk about the question, though. The sec- I think it's cyclical. I think... Carl Jung was right when he said, the Swiss psychiatrist said, the brighter the light, the deeper the darkness. Mm. I really believe America is a wondrous place. I've traveled the world and I could see the gifts of every country and you think, wow, these are great places, but I never lost my great love for America. And it's just what it is as portrayed, you know, a, a shining city on the hillside, mm-hmm. but it has a dark side. And I think we are going through the dark side now. And it's also happening in places like Hungary and in Russia and, you know, and in other lands. Uh, but it is cyclical. And I really don't think that we have the luxury of giving up hope. One of the books that uh, you wrote uh, among the 50 plus, Night Call, Embracing Compassion and Hope in a Troubled World. Mm. And since you've traveled the planet, as you've just said, uh, you've seen parts of this world that are troubled, uh, but you don't believe that that's true of us too here in the United States with all of the uh, of the hate that we see in different quarters, the racism and the poverty in that shining house on the hill. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I just think I just think that some of that that hate that you describe and divisiveness has been there all along. It's just been quiet. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that it was given permission to be let out. So the hope that I have is as people see it, they can begin to then face it. It's when you can't see it. You know, prejudice is not reasoned into people and it's not going to be reasoned out. Uh, so that when it comes out in the surface, then then people can really have a chance to to think about this rather than react to it. And I think it's also a last-ditch effort uh, by people who are frightened of what is new, what is caring, what is broad in terms of, of, of different cultures and approaches to things. So I, I, I do have hope. I, I really do. I think that... Uh, I, I, you know, when I was in, yeah, I heard a story about a physician who worked with Physicians Without Boundaries, mm-hmm. and he was walking the streets of Somalia during the height of the starvation, and he was stopped by an interviewer from NPR, National Public Radio in America, and he said, how can you stand all this carnage? You know, the old people are dropping like flies, and the children are dying so quickly, you're, you're stacking them up in the corner like firewood instead of burying them. And the physician looked back at him through tired eyes, and he said, when you see this carnage on television, it's overwhelming, isn't it? He said, yes, it is. He said, well, we in country feel the same, if not more, but there is one difference. And the interviewer had seen a lot of things, so he was jaded, and he said, what difference? And the physician looked back at him and said, you can't lose hope as long as you're making friends. Mm. And I think that is an attitude that I feel from more people today than is put on TV. And that optimism, that uh, that positive outlook, I hope permeates the vast majority of people who are listening to The God Show today. Uh, we have to recognize the fact that so many elements of the world, so many cultures look at the United States with all of its riches and with all of its opportunities, uh, and they will see it as a remarkable and desirable place to be, but also narcissistic. Uh, As I've traveled, I think that more than anything, I've... I've heard definitions and um, and descriptions of my country rarely ever in terms of humility. What about you? Yeah, I feel the same. And and today, more than ever before, the the title of that novel that was written years ago, in which the movie was, I think Marlon Brando played the fellow in it, the Ugly American. Yes. And yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, you know, I'll go overseas and people will say, oh, you elected so-and-so. And I say, well, I didn't vote for him. And, and the response will be, it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter, you know. And, and at one level, I'd say, yeah, I guess it doesn't because, you know, corporately, you need to take responsibility for how your countrymen voted. I mean, so, and the same thing in, in, uh, I had somebody come from Scotland and, uh, he said, you know, in our papers, so-and-so was mentioned and, uh, it wasn't from politics. It was just broad entertainment. And I see it here 
and I see her family being, you know, it's a big deal. What does she do? I said, well, nothing. <laughs> and, no, no. He says, is she a singer or a dancer? Or I said, no. Uh, well, what is she? I said, famous. <laughs> and he couldn't, you should have seen the look on his face. It was just, you know, because, you know, we're used to singers or dancers or actors or, you know, there's some talent there. And the talent in this person and, and her family, you know, is fame, the ability to get attention, the ability to have people follow them. Uh, but, but there was nothing there underneath it. Celebrated because they are celebrities. Exactly. But you, meanwhile, have kept company and are in contact and have been in contact with an impressive list of people who do produce uh, the Zen master Suzuki, uh, poet Robert Lacks, author and monk Thomas Merton, a Buddhist psychologist Jack Cornfield, uh, a gentleman we did an hour on just a few weeks ago, Henry Nouwen, uh, but rabbis and uh, Nobel Peace Prize winners, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop, the, among the celebrated, and I won't use the word celebrity, but the celebrated people in all of those fields that you've had either direct contact with or that you've quoted, who do you think of, not necessarily one, but among those, who do you consider people who have been able to grasp being ordinary? Well, I, I think a, a number of them, let me just, like Desmond Tutu, uh, he was speaking at General Theological Seminary uh, a number of years back to the Episcopalian seminarians, and halfway through his presentation, one of the seminarians out in the audience nudged the dean who was sitting next to him, and he pointed up and said, Desmond Tutu was a holy man. And the dean did dean things. He looked at him and said, well, how do you know he's holy? And the young man didn't even blink. He said, I know that Desmond Tutu was holy because when I'm with Desmond Tutu, I feel holy. Mm. And that sense of, of in, you know, integrity and also, you know, just simplicity and honesty. Uh, a number of years ago, I was up at Harvard uh, sitting in the little kitchen of Henry Nowen, who was teaching up there at the mm. time. And I was presenting this book I wanted to write called Relationships, Nurturing the Gift of Availability. And he looked at me and he said, you're more practical than that. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, availability is not just a gift. It's, it's a challenge. It's a problem. So I thought, well, he's got a point. He said, well, but there must be something from scripture for it. You know, I said, well, what is it? I don't know. I don't know. And then halfway, we, we spent another 10 minutes or so chatting about my work supporting helpers and healers. And he said, wait a minute, I've got it, it from scripture. I said, what is it? He said, it's pruning. When you prune something, it doesn't blossom less. It blossoms more deeply. And I think of that when I work with people in groups, if you can prune the nonsense off, if you can prune the fear that, you know, that causes them to, to, to be the center of attraction. They, the self only has so much energy. They could have that energy to become truly themselves. And, and I really, 
you know, people don't realize how good they are. I sit across the way from people I barely know. And in five minutes, I think I think more of them than they do of themselves. I remember a nun came in. She was so accomplished. And she kept thinking she wasn't enough. And I was so frustrated. And all of a sudden, what came to mind was the phrase, don't you realize, sister, that true ordinariness is tangible wonder. Mm. And I think she got it for the first time. As you were talking about that, I thought of a magical moment in my life that was unforgettable in meeting and spending time with Mother Teresa. Uh And as I was reading your book, I must tell you that I continued to remember that day uh, because... as we talked, she continued to refer to working for others, being with others because of the needs of others. And as she was introducing this very humble convent with three nuns from Cairo uh, to our community here, I, I kept thinking of the simplicity of this remarkable woman that yeah. you refer to as ordinary. Yep. Yep. And, and, I, and her ordinariness was dramatic because it, it had such a commitment to what is good. It, one story I remember about her, because I was in Calcutta and I did visit where her convent was. And, and the story was that when she first was a teacher before she started the work that she started that she's well known for. There was a famine and the, the, the girls in her school needed food. So she went out to beg and one of the men, probably Hindu, uh, spit at her. Mm. And she said to him, well, that's for me. Now, how about something for my girls? <laughs> and he not only wound up giving something to her, he became a lifelong friend, you know, which wow. shows his openness. Wow. You know, his he he really exemplified the best of Hinduism. And, we, you know, he if they would have stopped there, we would have thought, oh, he represents the worst. No, 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 no. He was given the space to really open up his heart. And he did open it. And she was given the persistence and not the, the, the concern about herself and how she looks. And she brought that out in him. So that we all might have uh, real life examples. Who else uh, have you come in contact with, uh, either academically or in person, that you would consider an example of ordinariness? Well, I think of my own mentor, who was Flavian Burns, Abbot Flavian Burns. He was Thomas Merton's last abbot before mm. he died. Mm. And I was fortunate enough to have him as a mentor. And, and he had that sense of ordinariness. And he also appreciated it in, in Merton, uh, in the sense that, that, that he said, you know, Bob, he said, when we die... When we die, I think we'll see all the truths about ourselves. And he said, you know, I don't think uh, Merton would be surprised because
because he was so in touch with who he was as an ordinary person. He said, you and I, when we die, we'll be chagrined. And I said, Abbott, I don't think chagrin is the word that I would choose for myself. But the whole sense of that ordinariness in Trappist life is really such a motivation for those of us who are so active in life. So he would he would be one. Certainly, the Dalai Lama uh, is known for his ordinariness, and people have commented that a number of times. Uh, so he's another person that would. Robert Lacks, the minimalist poet, is another person uh, who's well known for his ordinariness. And uh, and I love to read about him. And there are books on Robert Lacks, like Pure Act, that was that that came out recently by McGregor, and also The Way of the Dreamcatcher by Steve uh, um, uh, 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 Giorgio, Giorgio, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, uh, Greek name. Uh, so I just find that I go back and reread about Robert Lacks because what it does is it calls me to prune my own self. I think we go through three stages. First, self-awareness, finding our name. You know, in biblical language, it's very easy to stay Abraham, but when you're called to be Abraham, you know, you really are stepping out and grasping at it. It's like Sarai becoming Sarah, a woman filled with new potential. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second is to take a few steps back and prune your main name. So if mine is passion, then maybe gentle passion so that I'm not intrusive in people's lives. And the final stage is a mysterious one as we leap into the darkness. And for me, that means making my second word gentle at the heart of my life. People will always see me as passionate, but I'll be emphasizing gentleness. And someone once sent to me, you said it's a leap into the darkness. Why is it dark? I said, well, number one, because, you know, I see how I've not been gentle in the past and how I fail in the present. And the person said, well, then why would you do that if it, it's a dark period? I said, because in that darkness, I understand grace for the first time and that I can't do it by myself. In that darkness, I can really feel the freedom that I'm not seeking success. I'm seeking faithfulness to what's good. Robert Wicks, our guest on The God Show with the Tao of Ordinariness. As, as you're reflecting on the people that you've written about in this book, uh, that have achieved ordinariness. I thought that there seemed to be a common quality of humor among so many of them. Was that just my perspective, or did you also notice that yourself? No, I, I, that's a reality of ordinariness. And I think that, that it's often people with a good sense of humor that that really can stand, for example, besides people with power and help them, you know, keep a sense of perspective. And the people that I turn to are the mothers of presidents, like mm-hmm. uh, Lillian Carter was the mother of Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they asked her once in an interview, 
and she was hot stuff. She was working, I think, in India in the 70s. Uh, they asked her, they said, do you ever get discouraged? Oh, she said, some days I look around at my children and think I should have remained a virgin. <laughs> And then Barbara Bush, oh. she was a character. Oh. On her, when she was in the hospital for the last time, she was sitting there with the nurse and her son, President Bush, George Bush, came in and she nudged the nurse <clears throat> and pointed up at her son. And she said to the nurse, do you know why he is the way he is? <laughs> she looked at what I know. She said, because the way he's the way he is, because when I was pregnant with him, I smoked and drank. <laughs> I've never heard that quote. Yeah, that, that was from George's own mouth. Oh, yeah. and what yeah. a funny, funny lady. Spontaneous as it was, that sense of humor. Didn't you find, though, that in looking at all of these people and the quality itself, that it's very difficult to be ordinary? Well, for some people, yes. For some people, no. I mean, there are some people that you meet that they're just so, so much themselves. They're, they're appropriately transparent. They're relaxed with who they are. Um, you know, but for other people, they see it as a project. They don't see it as a search and, you know, for, for, for themselves on a pilgrimage. It's like in meditation and in self-awareness. People can go down three dark alleys. The first is arrogance, where they project the blame on others. The second is ignorance, where they condemn themselves. And the third is discouragement, because they can't get what they want. The, the one that I sell when I speak, is a sense of intrigue. If you can become intrigued about yourself, you know, your sins as well as your, your gifts, well, I think then you begin to start on a journey that really is one that, that, that leads to a genuine sense of self, and then people pick that up. It, it makes a big difference to others if you're genuine. I mean, because you, you're opening up a space for them. You know, Carl Buhner said, they may forget what you said, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And it's that ordinariness. Robert Wicks, with the subtitle to the Tao of Ordinariness, being humility and simplicity in a narcissistic age. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if people listening right now in so many different parts of the world uh, might be concerned that you're also saying that those who take pride in their accomplishments are not ordinary. Uh, that that if you win the Stanley Cup, if you win the Super Bowl, if you win an Oscar, if you win uh, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, that somehow you should dismiss all of that and have an attitude of, oh, well, uh, you know, that's nothing. I was lucky. Mm, mm. Yeah, that would be a misinterpretation because when you have that kind of accomplishment, it's great fun. It's great fun. But we have to be careful about success. When I was in uh, South Africa, uh, 
working with people post-apartheid, a woman came up to me and said, I just can't do it anymore. I said, well, what is it that you do? She said, I work with women who've been sexually and physically abused, and I try to get them justice, and I have to take them to court. They need to take a day off, even though they're poor. And we get to court. The judge looks at the papers and says, oh, I haven't had a chance to read them. Make another appointment. She said, I'm a failure. And I let the dust settle because she was upset. And then I said to her, well, who was with that woman other than you at that moment? She said, no one. I said, would it be an exaggeration to say that you were closer to her at that moment than anyone else in the world? She said, no, it wouldn't. And then as gentle a voice as I could muster, I said, and you want to leave that? I said, don't you realize we are not in the success business we're in the faithfulness business. And I feel that same thing about accomplishments. It's wonderful if you win something. Enjoy it, have fun, celebrate. But even if you don't win, if you've been part of the race in some way, then I think that is also a cause for joy. Tell our audience about the Olympic swimmer, Ms. Sadecki. Oh, yeah, she is one of the most, if not the most, decorated of our swimmers. But yet, when she was appearing, she brought an Olympic winner from years before her. And she introduced her with, with a lot of praise and, 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 and gratitude. And when she did that, she modeled for all the little girls there a sense of what it means to have gratitude what it means to realize you're, you're standing on the shoulders of others and what it means to appreciate other people that have come before you. And I think her introduction of that other swimmer and her, her respect for that other swimmer set a model for the girls there that is much better than some of the models that other athletes set. Must we not also be cautious about false humility, those people who have accomplished many great things and then just dismiss them for the sake of appearances? Yeah, yeah. You could hear it in some of the, you know, you can look at their expression nonverbally and their words are saying, well, I'm humbled by this achievement. And we've, you know, I mean, that's, that's far from, from humility. It, it's... So we have to be careful of the words. Often the people who are actually humble never use the word and never, you know, even, you know, portray themselves as being that way. With all that we've talked about for almost an entire hour about the grandeur of ordinariness, uh, Robert Wicks, I must ask you now, to please give us some kind of plan that we can use individually. How do we learn to be ordinary? I would say two things strike me right above board. One is taking some periods of alone time. And I think I, when we sit in silence and solitude and wrapped in gratitude, it helps us to be clear it helps us to see our foibles and increase our enjoyment with being who we really are. And it's less dependence on others and enables to recognize our games, anger, entitlement, greed, and cowardice, but recognize it not with self, 
self-beating up, but, but a sense of desire to know that. And it helps us accept change and loss and recognize our compulsions and make us more in tune with the voice of God or the Spirit. So I see that as a piece. The other one is a sense of friendship. I think we need four types of friends. The prophet who says, you know, what voices are guiding you that you're not aware of? The cheerleader who's sympathetic no matter what we do? Third, the harasser or teaser, because on the way to taking our journey seriously, we can do a detour and take ourselves too seriously. And finally, the inspirational friend that calls us to be all that we can be without embarrassing ourselves that we are where we are. Friendship and alone time really do help us, along with humor and a desire to find our gifts, not as a sign of selfism and narcissism, but so that we can have the gifts to freely share with others, expecting nothing in return. That'll help us get there. In the 19 years that we've been doing The God Show, this is the first time, it occurs to me, that I've ever had occasion to ask any guest this question. Robert Wicks, was Jesus a perfect example of ordinariness? To me, yes. To me, yes. I mean, for example, when he met the woman at the well and essentially received the message that he believed from the Father to then go out into uh, Samaritan country and share the, share the word. He had moved from, you know, the 12 baskets for the tribe of Israel to the seven baskets that were international. Just think about it. He was willing, willing to receive the word from the Father through a woman in a male-dominated society and through a non-Jew. And that was almost anathema. But he had the humility and simplicity to receive that message, just like he received it from his own mother. My time hasn't come. Oh, yes, it has. And yet he thought, okay, I'm going to accept that. That is much more of an openness that we see in leaders today. So, yes, he was a good model for me of ordinariness. You're a highly respected academic and author of more than 50 books. And in this closing minute of The God Show, I ask you, Robert Wicks, what your greatest difficulty has been achieving ordinariness for yourself? I think it's been those times when I've doubted that, in fact, my life in with its gifts with its growing edges was one that i could freely live and share without worrying that somebody would say is that all there is and reject me i i feel that those anxieties have caused me to instead of being passionate to be exhibitionistic instead of being committed to what is good, to settle for what I think other people believe is good. It's, it's, it's not an easy journey, but when you get that freedom and that sense of, of, of awe about what you've been given as a gift to share with others, 
it's all worth it. Wherever you are on the planet, if you happen to be listening right now, you've been listening to Robert Wicks and uh, a life lesson called The Dowel of Ordinariness. It's a new book. And uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And you can tell as many others as you'd like about the conversation that we've had on Star Worldwide Networks, iTunes, Spotify, and you might say Robert Wicks was joined by his new friend, Pat McMahon, on The God Show. <laughs>